Hey guys, what's up? This is Emmett. I am here with your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I've got a guest, Bill Coyne. What's up, Bill? Hey, Emmett. Hey, listeners. So today is going to be a change of pace. We talk a lot about basically brainy shit on here. Today, we're going to talk about getting yoked, getting jacked and tan, but we're also going to talk about legacy shifts in American culture and a whole bunch of other stuff because Bill is a gym owner, right? You still doing that? Yes, I, I am. Yes, I am for now. Yeah, we, we made it through COVID. Yeah, what was that like? That was really interesting. Um, you know, I, I was super optimistic at first about it because uh, so it's not just maybe to give people um, a better idea of what the gym looks like. So it's not really a it's not your typical commercial gym like an LA Fitness or an Equinox or a Planet Fitness, anything like that. It's more of a, it's more of a, you could say a studio, or I even think of it as a club. Everything is done in either in classes or you're working one-on-one with myself or one of the other coaches at the gym there. And partly that's just really everybody is doing the same thing. The, the gym primarily is focused on strength training. So when you come in, it might look a little bit like a CrossFit box. If you're familiar with that, it's fairly bare bones. It's just a bunch of power racks, squat stands, barbells, and weights. Yeah, importantly, you've got a toilet seat with a flaming skull on it. Yeah. That, the toilet is really close to a dishwasher, if I remember correctly. That was left behind by the previous tenant. Yeah, that's uh, which I have never used. But yeah, there's uh, I, got, I inherited a dishwasher in the bathroom next to the toilet. Yeah. And that was after the flame toilet seat, too. So that was, we posted a few powerlifting meets, and every single time we do, something gets broken in a way that I never thought possible. And we have some pretty big people at the gym, right? There's, there's a couple of guys that have trained there on and off who weigh between 350 and 400 pounds for a very large. Oh, those are people. some big boys. That's some, that's some big boys. And, and everything in the bathroom, toilet seat included, survived what they did to it in, in all possible ways. And uh, the last meet that I hosted, I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, hey, the toilet seat's broken what do you mean it's broken? And I figure maybe one of the screws came loose from it and I just had to tie, tighten it back up. But no, somebody had split it in half. I don't know. And I don't know how they could have done it. I mean, it's literally the seat is just split right down the middle. I have no, I have no idea how that happened. But as a gift, one of one of the members brought in next day, a, they had quick shipped it off of Amazon. It's a toilet seat with a flaming skull design on the seat, which is pretty neat. But we found out pretty quickly that was not meant for commercial use because it just started like peeling and falling apart pretty quickly. <laughs> so, so I'm sad to say like we had to had to go back to just uh just R. plain R. white. All right, <laughs> man. But it was fun while it lasted. But now to, to go back to the gym. So everything's in classes. It's and it's all strength focused too. So whenever anybody comes in, regardless of what their background is, age, ability, anything like that, we've got everybody from I think the youngest person there right now uh, is 11 years old, all the way up into oldest member right now is I think 74, 75, and we get them stronger, and we get them stronger through big basic exercises like barbell squats, bench presses, overhead presses, deadlifts, and just really variations thereof. And we just we just try to get people stronger. Obviously, you got to make a few accommodations. Don't try to force everybody. Um, into doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. For example, we can't get, I don't expect a a 70-year-old with osteopenia or possibly osteoporosis. We have people come in with, with those conditions. They're probably not going to be able to do a good squat on day one, but it is a ton of fun to really see. And we've had this where people can't, 
on day one, when they come in, they cannot stand up out of a chair unassisted. So that's day one. It's just, okay, let's find a height that's comfortable, like a chair or a, or a high box they can sit to. And the progression is pretty much the same for everybody. You just try to do a little bit more than you did the last time, whether that's one or two more reps or a couple of pounds, or in some cases we can even load a 10 aluminum, 10 pound barbell with as little as a quarter of a pound each side, as long as it's some sort of progress, that's all we're aiming for. And that really adds up for most of the kids I work with are not athletes of any kind. That's super rewarding to work with because you've got these kids that don't really know their bodies that are weak. And that usually comes with, and I, this is coming from uh, my own experience too, not a lot of self-confidence or, or self-esteem, right? And they start to feel, get a feel for their body and they become a little bit of an athlete and they get stronger and they can see that bar, more weight being added to that bar. They feel stronger, gives them a lot of confidence. You can see a real attitude change. That's a ton of fun, super rewarding to see at the opposite end of the spectrum with the older adults. That is, as a profound impact on their ability to just live independently. There's people that talk Mm -hmm. about, there's always everybody at the middle age and older has a sort of, I don't have a good word for it, but it's almost sort of a, like a light bulb, like an Archimedes moment where it's just, man, this is something just really clicks. They realize they've done something that they haven't been able to do for years and maybe decades. Like one example is they're able to just stand up out of a chair by themselves without somebody else helping them, or they're able to pick up something that they've never been able to pick up before, or they're just able to do something for longer. They don't get tired out just from walking around or just taking one flight of stairs. It's, it's a ton of fun to watch. And it's the same sort of thing with them, with the kids too, because that it's probably harder too, when you've been younger and you were able to do all these different things and then the aging process creeps in and that's taken away from you. And to see them get it back, really it's adding years to their life. It's definitely adding years to their ability to live independently and actively do the things that they want to do. And that's, um, that's enormously rewarding. And at the same time, I still love being a competitive power lifter and being part of that for, oh, 16 years now. It's also a ton of fun to just have giant dudes from Russia come in and squat 650 for just easy sets of five. Uh, that's, that, that's, that is also a ton of fun too. Yeah, uh, I remember the I'm, first time I watched somebody like squat over a thousand. It's like life-changing. Oh, it's incredible. You well, know, like I you guess can like the, watch you can watch tape of it and you're like, oh, that's cool. But when you actually see someone do that in person, you're like, I have no idea what is and is not possible. Yeah. And that that's one of the things of why I wanted to wanted it to be not so much of a public gym, but to really have get people in at at the same time. It's a little bit of social engineering because I want to try to put people that are in similar age demographics with the same people so they can see, especially with the older adults, because so many of them are so hesitant to do anything like this because they come in, they see the racks, they see the bars, there's no machines, no treadmills, Yeah, nothing they're like, like snap that. city, like I'm done for. Exactly. There's, they think, yeah, if I deadlift, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to break my back. If I squat, if my knees are going to explode, something like that. So it really helps to have people that look like them doing those same things that helps enormously. And that's, that's a huge part of of any successful gym culture, right? Like I'm sure it was the same for you with the people you're training with in Florida, being able to see those sorts of things makes a huge difference. Like we can maybe get into talking about Westside Barbell here. The reasons that I wanted to bring Bill on is because he just did a pilgrimage out to see Louis Simmons of Westside Barbell. 
She's in Ohio. And for listeners that don't know, you can watch a great documentary called, I think, uh, West Side Against the World or West Side Versus the World. I can't remember. West Side Versus the World. Yeah, that's about it. It's the strongest gym in the world. And it has been that for decades now. And that's largely because of, it's entirely because of Louis, who is probably one of the most single-minded people ever to walk the face of the earth. Um, yeah. Obs- obsessed is not a strong enough word. It really isn't. And so Louis himself, and that's really to go back 15, 16 years, that's really Louis and Westside was my, that was my introduction to competitive powerlifting. It was in a men's heart, men's health article in an issue that, that my dad had. And at the time, 14 or 15 years old, again, not a natural athlete by any means, but growing up in Texas and going to a big high school with a very successful football program, also being the child of divorce. There's lots of built up anger and all kinds of stuff. And uh, contact sport just really seemed like the right place for me. Yeah. Just like, oh, you're telling me I can be violent. It's all right. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, man. And I, I ended up liking it more than I thought I would. And I wanted to be good at it, especially because I had never really up until high school, I never played a contact sport. I didn't understand why all sports weren't contact sports. And so when I finally found that, I really enjoyed it, really liked it. And I wanted to be better at it, but man, I was, I was weak. I was uncoordinated. I was just undeveloped. And when I got into high school, I remember seeing on the school weight room wall, the record board, the all-time record board, and just seeing the numbers for each of the positions there. The number that really stuck out to me was there's a guy who had graduated a few years before I entered high school who had gone on to be a linebacker at UConn. So a D1 linebacker, which is legit athlete that guy's a stud and he had the biggest number on the board with a 500 pound squat and i thought that was like the pinnacle of human athletic achievement right yeah just like strength and then i also noticed too because they would keep a like print out a spreadsheet of uh the numbers from when everybody would test at the end of summer at the end of off season and notice this correlation between the guys who had the biggest lifts tended to get the most playing time and not only that but the guys who had the absolute biggest lift tended to be the ones who were all district or there was one lineman that was all state from the prior year. And so I figured, Oh, maybe I need to get stronger. And Hold on, just yeah, real go quick. Ahead. It's funny you say that because I was like listening to a table talk with Jim Wendler and Dave Tate. They were both former West side guys and former mm-hmm. high school and college football players. Wendler was a walk on at Arizona that ended up lettering, which yeah. if you don't know not, what that means, just, that is insanely rare. <laughs> that's insanely rare. That's also not only that, but that was the best team that the University of Arizona ever had. I want to yeah. say they beat Nebraska in their bowl game that year when Nebraska was still a, an absolute powerhouse. So yeah, exactly. And at some point, Wendler and Dave Tate cross paths at Westside, and they go out. If you're at Westside, you go out and you do seminars with Louie. You teach people how to do things or whatever. So they went out, they did a seminar, and they put on a meet, I think. They drove back to Ohio, dropped Louie off, and they were just dead silent in the car. These are guys who are like squatting hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Wendler ended up squatting at one grand. That was his goal. And Tate was a monster too. And they're dead silent, and then they hit a red light. And Dave Tate just says, football is, or he's powerlifting is just GPP for football. It's just general physical preparedness. <laughs> and Wendler just went, yep, 
<laughs> they were quiet for the rest of the ride. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So especially in, in, in most contact sports, the, the bigger, stronger guy is going to be the one that wins. There's, you could, depending on the sport, there's more that goes into it, but it definitely helps to be a lot stronger than the guy who's trying to knock you over. Makes a big difference. But so I ended up finding, you know, looking around for different resources, how to get stronger. I just happened to stumble upon this article about competitive powerlifting, which at the time it was almost a a totally different sport from how it is now, because at the time it was the biggest player right now. There's competitive powerlifting just to, I don't know if I can really explain it well to the listeners for those who aren't familiar with it, but it's three exercises. It's the squat, the bench press and the deadlift. You just try to do wonder at max as much as you can do. And the best of those three, the best attempt and the best lift that you do successfully out of those three, they put that together for your total. That's determines the rankings and competitions, but it is a much sort of cleaner, younger, more spectator, or so you could say general audience friendly sport now, largely because we could really say this is maybe one of the good things about social media is that It exposed so many people, especially so many young people to what is a very accessible uh, sport that any, that literally anybody can participate in it. Anybody can. Yeah. If you got access to a gym with a squat rack, you can pretty much do it. Yeah, exactly. You need a minimal amount of equipment and not that much. And yeah, you can go compete in a meet. Now it used to be the case where it was largely former athletes, especially football players that still really wanted to lift weights and have some sort of competitive outlet. And then you had a lot of sort of social outcasts and degenerates, right? So you had this is a lot of ex-cons, a lot, lot of, of, of ex-cons, all and just all mixed in together, yeah. all mixed in, right? So many guys I knew at the first powerlifting gym that I briefly trained at that one of the guys who is who has now gone on to be one of the the best bench pressers of all time, he came into that gym straight out of the pen. Yeah, as so many of those guys, as so many of them have, and so many of the dudes uh, that I trained with were in like the police academy or wanted to be. Like the yeah. overlap there is that Venn diagram may as well be a circle, or at least that's how it used to be. And even when I was getting started in the early 2010s, it was still like CrossFit was still cresting. So that changed a lot too. Like that, as yep. your other coach, Mark Ripito says, put a lot of hands on a lot of barbells yeah, uh, and r- really opened up the sport as well too. It was not something you did if you were like a normal person. It was not. And part of it, part of why those kinds of people got into it was because it was just no holds barred. So now like the biggest there's because powerlifting is so easy to get into. That means it's super easy to just essentially start your own league or federation, right? Anybody can do it. Part of that is because it's not an Olympic sport and there's no real clear, Oh, this is the the pinnacle of powerlifting as a competitive event. And it's largely just people that just want to lift weights. So a lot of most people, most of the people that compete have no, real aspirations as far as she does not winning a titles and championships. It's not, no, it's not in part because it's, you make nobody makes any money off of it, right? At least on the lifting itself. And so these federations now, the, the biggest ones now are very strictly drug tested. The judging is very tight, very consistent. The rules as far as decorum goes are very strict. 
back when I got into it and Emmett, you were in the same federations, like the APF, the American powerlifting. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like splitting open stitches on their knuckles during a deadlift. Cause they got in a yeah. bar fight. A couple weeks oh God. And, and there was, I don't know if you've, or I don't know if you've seen the picture, like Wendler, I remember Wendler posting a picture of the Arnold classic, which used to be one of the biggest competitions of the year in the bathroom they had sharps dispensers for the people that wanted to pin in between in between attempts or events <laughs> yeah. right if people like, don't know what that means that's for people that wanted to do steroids in between power not, not even here's the thing it's like it wasn't even it wasn't just steroids, oh and math man. Too, i mean like I, all sorts of stuff math coke there's a beautiful thing i actually talked to louis about this check drops if you remember those at all i I, this also just i never did any of this shit in case my parents end up listening to this but this (laughs) but but i I for sure um, did halo testing before (laughs) squad louis story one of the days i'm at breakfast with him and a couple of other guys and they had just come back from this huge not huge but a pretty big multiply meet that was put on by i don't even think it was really a real federation up in erie pennsylvania and the production values were pretty nice because it's like they had all these spotlights and, and this big background and like they loud music. So it seemed pretty well run. But Louis was saying, man, like the meets just aren't as exciting as they used to be. Part of it is because you just don't see those same kind of characters that come to these things anymore. And I jokingly said after, you know, Louis said how boring it wasn't just what, did they not make check drops anymore? <laughs> he just goes, he goes, man. Those did make meets a lot of fun. And he goes, man, Chuck used to take those all the time. <laughs> uh, and for anybody who's wanting, Chuck Vogelpohl, who's legendary uh, power lifter for the longest guy, was the lightest person to squat over a thousand pounds. I think his best squat was 1025 at a body weight of 220. But was a the way that Wendler put it was he was not somebody that made a lot of noise. It was more of like a serial killer like intensity. Right? <laughs> you, could, you could see it was they, like there was no noise, there was no hyping up, there wasn't a big show before the lift. You could just see murderous rage in, yeah. in his eyes. Well, anybody go anybody who's interested, just go watch any like compilation of Vogelpaul lifting, but and you'll see what we're talking about. But it's interesting, right? Because like powerlifting has still, parts of it are still dysfunctional and less professionalized. And the gyms still function as something of third places, which we've talked about a lot here, where your gym's probably the same way. People from all different backgrounds have a place where there's a way to express like excellence and experience rules and honor and all of these other things, regardless of those very backgrounds, right? Provided yeah. they can make it, make it in there. And obviously COVID put a huge clamp down on that, but it's a rare thing to experience. Like when you're actually in it, like when you're actually at a meet being put on by guys that have been doing it forever. Some people who aren't even lifting anymore. You got the truckers who come in with the really thin legs because they have bad back problems. And all they do is like multiply bench. <laughs> so they got these, yeah. there's that whole dynamic. It's just like a totally different world. And Louie is somebody who will have a legacy. Like he's getting up there now. He's got to be in his like seventies. I think he's still lifting. He he lifts as much as he can. So he's somewhere. He is somewhere in his mid seventies. I want to say seventy five or seventy six. Can't remember exactly how old. But considering the wear and tear he's put on his body, he's still in pretty good shape. He's broken uh, his back twice. Barely, yeah, to the point to where the first time he was on crutches for I think about a year yeah. uh, before. He uh, he figured out a way to figured out a way to rehab it himself. Was that when he invented uh, the reverse hyper? That's yes, like, it is. Yeah, yeah. That was and that was back in the seventies, right? Yeah, and that is uh, like so one of the most like legendary 
pieces of rehab equipment like ever created like any super high-end gym now especially with like pro athletes has a reverse hyper yeah they're they're all over the world now so yeah he's broken his back twice he has ruptured both his patella tendons so basically his knees have both his knees have just exploded torn both his pecs torn both of his biceps you know, I'm sure his shoulders are a total mess. And now he's at the point too, to where he, he, his neck is like totally immobilized. Like he can't look up, can't really turn his head at all. And he really talked to him about this and he pushed as hard as he could until he just couldn't really train anymore. So his last meet was really not that long ago. And he was still, I think he was still trying to squat somewhere in the seven hundreds at like close to 70 years old, Dude, which is Jesus absolutely Christ. insane. <laughs> uh, absolutely nuts. And still like his biggest squat was 920 pounds, which he did when he was 52 or 53, yeah. which is still insane, which is still crazy. Well, that's something know? that he talks about at the beginning of the West Side Book of Methods. Louis is not a very good writer, to be honest. And he's not like a very like linear thinker in a lot of ways. He lives in his own world of like code for things. But what I love about the opening to that Book of Methods is that he goes on this long reverie of all of the dudes that came before him. And he says, I never outlifted any of them, but I outlasted them all. <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, that's he was, Louis. <laughs> yeah, he was never. I don't think he ever won a. I know he never won a world championship. I don't know if he ever won a national championship, but he was in. He was always in the top ten for thirty or thirty-five years. Just never quit. Just kept insane going, kept longevity. Going, kept going. Insane longevity. It's especially given how broken his body had become he was even 40. Wendler was eating like literally three pounds of ground beef a day and that's not even his entire diet obviously there was on that he had to take breaks when he would walk his dog in between street lights while he was working at Westside all he could do was waddle mm-hmm. up to the monolift and squat and that's an insane level of stick to it is but he was there for five years and then he squatted a grand and he was like I'm out when yeah, or like Tate hung out there immediately for after because he was yeah I think he had a closer psychology to Louis where he was really like a hardcore lifer in a different way and he I think he had more of that darkness that Louis <clears throat> seemed to have especially when he was like middle-aged mm-hmm but uh, yeah, it's just really hard to stay in that gym. A lot of those guys died. One of those guys in the West Side versus the World documentary, what was his name? It was like... Are you thinking of Matt Dimmel? Matt Dimmel, yeah. It's just... Yes, yeah. Enormous guy, hugely powerful, injured himself too much. Like his heart literally exploded from doing speed balls or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. From an eight ball. Yeah. It's an unbelievably intense place. And I don't know if like I'm because I have to cater to more of a general population. I I try to keep things fairly serious, keep things focused, but at the same time, a, a fairly lighthearted. Am. Obviously, we're, like I'm not going to be playing blasting aside while my 70 year olds are. But West Side, it's funny because I actually I was fortunate in that the the gym that I spent my teenage years training at was Metroflex, which was home of ronnie coleman i was about to say ain't nothing but a peanut no which is crazy and obviously there was ronnie was the star and helped make that gym famous but what really made that gym were all the people that 
you had never really heard of, or were maybe big just on a state level. Yeah, local. Texas. It's all but the local guys, right? It's, it's all like the, the local guys. You know, Kirk yeah. Karboski, another really famous power lifter, huge guy. Watch his video of him squatting a grand for a double. I still watch it when I want to get inspired. But there's literally one guy who wasn't even that good of a lifter that Karboski kept in his circle because the way the guy whispered in his ear before he went to squat pissed him off so much that it got him yeah. fired up enough to do things like squat a grand for a double. That's those people. That's the culture of the gym. That makes everything. It's not just the stars. No, it's, it is like a small society. Everybody in places like that, Metroflex was a public gym and anybody could join. It was so grungy, so aggressive. Like you, you really had to, for those places, you really had to be there. And so you really had to sort out how to really, how to be useful there. And that's very much so then Westside has always been a, a private, uh, it's been a private gym for, they always say it's really invite only if you want to train there full time, but they're always welcome to visitors. But and the other crazy thing too, is nobody's ever, nobody has ever paid to train at Westside. So all the guys like Wendler and Dave Tate, who was there for 20, 25 years or whatever, never paid Louie to train there. It was always, Louie always paid for it out of, out of his own pocket one way or another. But the expectation was you give everything you have to this. And that doesn't just mean showing up and lifting hard. That means like you're part of, you're part of the crew. You're part of a team. Some people would maybe call it a bit of a cult where you're there to you're there to help even if you're not even if you're not lifting you you come in you help spot load weights clean things up you're expected to go to meets and help everybody else out even if you're not competing even if that means traveling to another state you're expected to go help out and different people had different roles for I know for Chuck really trusted Dave Tate as far as handling him at meets, calling his death, getting his suit adjusted the right way, getting his shirts adjusted the right way. And then you had guys, I don't know if you remember Bob Coe from the documentary, who was just a batshit crazy person who was really good at firing people up and getting him really aggressive before a list. Not a great lifter in his own, but the dude could really get people amped up before a list. He was the vibe manager. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, yeah, he was yeah. The, he was the hype man. And then you've got even though again Dave was largely responsible for handling Chuck and the meets, like Lou was still the one really calling the shots, calling the attempts, and really was the sort of the godfather. And the, the real thing too is not just the atmosphere because I'm talking Metroflex was very much the same way. And then as you probably experienced down in Florida, then there's so many places that had that same sort of atmosphere. And a lot of them had the same sort of expectations, but none of them had Louie. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't, obviously you had guys, especially at the smaller private places, the owners who also tended to be the coaches and the, the ultimate authority on anything lifting that goes on in there. But what you have in Louie is somebody who is willing to do absolutely anything it takes to get stronger. And this is sort of because I've now spent a good amount of time with Louie having been, having trained at Westside twice now, spent a good, a time, good amount of time with Mark Ripito. And it's interesting to see the difference between the two, right? Because at least nominally, they're concerned with the same thing. They, they want to get people stronger. Yeah. I'm glad you're on this because yeah. I was going to ask you to compare and contrast the experience with, yeah. with Ripito, <laughs> who seems to be concerned with like democratizing strength and Louie, while he'll let visitors show up, is like really interested in like strength expertise. 
There is. I, I really would say that they both have the same ends in mind. They, they want to get people stronger. I mm-hmm. think you could say the same sort of thing. And we're, we're ripped very much is we want to get your average person off the street under a bar lifting weights, right? Yeah. Louis, very much the same thing, but that's not who he deals with anymore. That used to be the case. That's, mm-hmm. you know, talk about really, you mentioned it at the top of the show. It has been West Side Barbell has been the strongest, the strongest for a long time. It was only an 800 square foot strip mall space with mm-hmm. the, the windows painted black. It yeah, was a blacked tiny, out windows, space yeah. with the blacked out windows. It was 800 square feet, just a couple, maybe a couple dozen guys at most when they had a full squad in there. And now it's 4,000 square feet, but that's not that much. And it's tucked away back in an industrial park. If you wouldn't, you would never know it was there if you didn't know the address of it. You didn't know what you were looking for. Louis, for the longest time, had to find just anybody that wanted to lift. He made, I listened to this thing with Dave Tate where he said, Louis probably had 60 to 70 guys hit elite totals that were just from the west side of Columbus before he actually started recruiting people. So we're talking just like, that's a lot. That's a lot. And we're talking an elite total is that's something crazy. That, that is that people hard to get. That is insane. That, for real. Isn't it that is, crazy? It is elite. Yeah. We're talking that is for somebody that is like in the 220 pound class. If you're going by the United States Powerlifting Federation standards, that's like an 1800 pound total. So that's a, what would it be like the 650 squat and deadlift? And then, so that puts it 13 and then, uh, 400 pound bench press. Jesus Christ. If that's right, am I getting my math right? 500 pounds. No, then you need to bench 500. Yeah, you, you need to bench 500. That's nuts. Yeah. That's nuts. Quick math. So that's they. again, this is all to just say, they both want to get people stronger. That is that is the goal, to get people strong. The, the issue really seemed to be where uh, Rip is, I mean, much more tied up in a kind of ideology. And, and, and a sort of, I was thinking about this before, before I jumped on, it's a kind of, it's a kind of conservatism where he wants things to remain as they were at the old York barbell, where you did your fives. It was always heavy star, maybe a handful of examples. Yeah, that's exactly right. He wants it. And he wants, he wants his mentor, his coach to still have some sort of legacy. And, and now there's a whole brand that's built around it. And, and you got to keep things on brand and you got to, and you know, there's a whole lot of trappings involved with that. Whereas Louis has a specific way of doing things, but that is after decades of destroying his body in the pursuit of just getting stronger and leaving no stone unturned. And inventing machines into and like the the weird sort of like hip work those guys do and like repurposing some football training machines and stuff like that is totally unique to Westside and really comes out of Louis's familiarity with and respect for the Russian Olympic and powerlifting coaches that come out of the 80s. So that's mm-hmm. part of how he comes up with conjugate method, which is what he's known for, which is very different than the Bill Starr, Mark Ripito approach, which is just adding more weight over time. Linear. Yeah. And really the Bill Starr, Mark Ripito approach is just what everybody else did. Obviously, Star Wars really the first to start writing books and wrote just dozens and dozens of articles on training. But he was basically doing what everyone else is doing. It's just, you just always try to add a little bit more weight. And that's great when you're a beginner. It works amazingly for first year. Beginner to intermediate, that's everything. It's beautiful. Yeah, because you just, you, you literally lift more weight than you've ever lifted before every time you come into the gym. It's awesome. You mm-hmm. hit a personal record every time. It's a ton of fun when 
new people coming to the gym, that's exactly what I have them do. It's just, yeah, today, all right. So today when they first come in, we'll say, all right, 50 pounds, that's good enough for today. They come in two to three days later, 55 pounds, awesome, still looks good. And we, just, we run that out as long as possible. Like we've had like the best example. I had a kid from Northwestern that came in in day one, his deadlift was I think low 200s. We'll just say like around 215, 225 pounds for a set of five and just nonstop ran that progression up to 500 for a triple exactly one year later, which is pretty cool. That's some pretty solid progress yeah, that's there. Lit. That's awesome. But that's really hard to do once you start to get really strong. And this is where for a lot of people, it became this thing with Rip, which is like, we just need to try harder. Like, <laughs> you just need to eat more. And there was never a real serious examination or questioning of, okay, like, do we really need to change our training methods here to get better? And this was essentially the problem that Louis ran into. And Louis, not only, it wasn't just that his progress stalled, but he started really getting injured. This is when he wrecked his back and tore his bicep. Right. And, and a lot of guys, honestly, that would happen to a lot of guys. They'd peak in the sport, they'd crush it for a year or two, they'd really fuck themselves up, and then they'd have to drop out because- yeah. They were never going to hit that peak again. They, yeah. They'd be still or, be strong. They'd still train, but it wouldn't be the same. Yeah, they'd hit their peak on you know a program that they had outgrown, and a lot of times to try to eke out more progress than just all right. I got to start taking steroids, and then as soon as that dose and that program stopped yielding any progress, oh, I just got to start taking. But that became the, that, that became, became about extracurriculars. Yeah, and then and then it just leads to pharmacopoeia to where, like, dude, like the trends got me really amped up. Like I needed I needed some weed to calm me down. But then like, oh, but I got to get amped up before my before I squat. Mm-hmm. So I got to do a line of coke. But it's just, and it's just it's a you get into a dark place after that. But so Louis is really and, and I didn't really appreciate appreciate this until I started training the way using. Louis principles, but it's such a break from the norm because it's not, it gets the, the way you would really describe it for anybody that's not really familiar with lifting. So really you, all you really do say, if you were really trying to get stronger or you're a competitive power lifter, you usually break things up into eight to 12 to 16 week training programs. And all you really do is you start out by starting with a moderately lightweight at the front end of that program. And you do three, three to four sets of eight to 10 reps. And you keep that number fixed for the first few weeks and just add weight to that every single week for your big exercises, your squat, your bench pressing, your deadlift. And then you start to taper the numbers down a little bit, the rep scheme to say three sets of six or three sets of five, or maybe even a five by five, something like that. But then same idea, you just want to keep ramping the weight up. And the way that you keep ramping the weight up is you just keep dropping the reps lower so that by the end of that 12, 16 week program, ideally you are now hitting one rep maxes that are above where you ended up two to three months from now, you're peaking. And really all you're doing too, is you're crossing your fingers and you're hoping that this works at the end of, by the end of the program. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does. If you're still, if you're still pretty young, you're still pretty new, or you just started taking a bunch of new stuff, it's probably going to work. Now, the issue was, is that once you get pretty strong, you really have to have this constant exposure to getting stronger. And it's really like any other skill, right? You get to this level where you really have to immerse yourself in it more to where you need to be doing like really harder things on a regular basis to get better at it. So what Louie did was he was somehow able to, and I never really got a 
super straight story out of him of, of how he really came across the Russian manuals for the first time. But at some time in the late 70s, the Russians had had always been published. They had a the Russians had built at that point, the Soviets had built an unbelievable sport training program and sport development program, starting with kids that were, you would say, maybe in their somewhere around eight to nine years old is when they would start this program in very general exercises. And we were talking like they would just have them run, jump, very simple stuff, just get them used to their body, give them some sort of base athleticism. And then as they started to physically develop, they would start to show, say, a proclivity for one sport or another based on either how fast they were or their build, their anthropometry. And so the people in the Soviet Union, they would look at this and say, hey, you would looks like you would be pretty good at this sport. And then once they got into their early teens, they would start to put them in slightly more specialized program, but they're not really all in on the sports now. It's a very different way that we than we do things here, right? To where you just say, hey, you're going to play baseball to like a 10-year-old. And then they stay in that lane for basically until either they get a college scholarship or they make it, or they, if they're lucky enough, they may, can do it professionally or they just get burned out or injured. But the Soviets would just continue to develop these this general pool of motor skills and slowly build this broad base. And then they would, as they got older, they would, and it also depended on the sport, like who they figured out, okay, for say basketball, this is peak age that they want them at for soccer. It's going to be this peak age. And they developed them physically and mentally, psychologically, so that they could peak at the right age. And they really, they went about this in an incredibly systematic way. And they published all these papers, all these manuals about it. Some, this guy named Bud Charniga up in Wisconsin, or, um, Michigan, rather. Yeah, when you're Michigan, baby, <laughs> you yeah, can still buy them. And they're like He's Xeroxes, you get plastic bound and curved. Yeah, spiral bound, man. Yeah. yeah. And so Louis somehow found them, started reading them, and just realized, like, man, we're doing everything backwards. Because at the time, the Soviets were dominating all the, really all the real Olympic sports. So like weightlifting, mm -hmm. Olympic weightlifting, track and field. There, there are weightlifting and like the clean and jerk record and the hammer throw record are still 30 plus years old and held by Soviets and have just not been touched, which is crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Yes. So it's Sergei Didik still holds the hammer throw record, which was done sometime in the mid eighties. Leonid Taranenko still holds the clean and jerk mm. world record. And so they had some of the technically holds a record for strongest man in the world that hasn't been touched since 1988. Yeah. yeah. And they uh, had just some amazing crazy results. Crazy strong wrestlers too. Alexander Carolyn. I was about to say, Alexander Carolyn is probably yeah. the typical example. The only reason the U S could hang with them is because we had the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had Iowa, out dudes. Right? Yeah. yeah, we had Iowa, and we had dude, and it turned out people like Dan Gable. But that's almost it, like I don't want to sweat anybody who was involved in that guy's success or anything involved with the glory of American Olympic wrestling. But I just want to say that is more fluke than organized structure. Yes, it like is one hundred percent Soviets. 100%. And then, of course, the the focus shifted. It was really interesting. And I don't know if we want to get into but we're drifting away from more of the West Side stuff and and, and kind of more into strength and uh, strength sport history and maybe some cultural stuff. But this is where the United States dominated all those sports for the longest time, like weightlifting in particular. There was mm -hmm. the York Barbell Company in York, Pennsylvania, which was the it's, it's basically what Rogue Fitness 
It was yes. the rogue of its day. It had an absolute, even more so. It had an almost total monopoly on, on only the waiter family weightlifting could compete. Only the waiter family could compete, and they were well, not like a different thing. It was a totally different thing. And weeder, the weeders really didn't. They really didn't start to trail Hoff, Bob Hoffman and York Barbell until like maybe until really like the '60s, and then the '70s is where it really blew up. Yeah, um, thanks, Arnold. Large, 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 yeah, yeah. Thanks to the largest thanks to, to Schwarzenegger, amongst a number of other things. But you look at. I was looking back at this actually a while ago. We're looking at the metal count for weightlifting, and up until the '50s, it is all USA. It's all USA, and then you get into the the mid '50s. And the Soviets start creeping up. And then all of a sudden, by the time you get to the mid 60s, the Soviets are just absolutely dominating every single weight class, taking all the records and nobody can keep up with them. No. And some Americans and, uh, will tell you, they're like, they were doing steroids and, it's, and so were Americans. <laughs> and so were Americans. Absolutely. So were Americans. And so really what the, what ended up, what seemed to end up happening then was then the United States, rather than just nut up and try to get better, just stop caring. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, the funding to to USA, US, uh, USWF, US Weightlifting Federation just totally dried up. They stopped caring. The athletes that would have been great Olympic weightlifters then because of commercial, essentially because of financial incentives, ended up going into namely the NFL. They can make a living doing that as opposed to living just above the poverty line being a weightlifter. At the same time, you get in the late 60s, the running and the aerobic boom, mm-hmm. which had an enormous amount of commercial momentum behind it. This is when Nike is founded in the early 70s. You have in the late 60s, the publication of Kenneth Cooper's Aerobics, which is an absolutely atrocious book, has started a movement, right? And so you have in, and you had very much, and maybe this has something to do with just the, the simple ideological split of East and West, but in behind the Iron Curtain, everything was very much, it started with strength, all their athletes were strong. All of them had a strong, had a literal strong base, but also a very broad athletic base. And a lot all of that had to do with were, strength training. Yeah. And all their soldiers, all their soldiers were strong, were strong. too. You get an AK Me- and a 24 kilo kettlebell always. Yeah. Like, and yeah, you just play exactly. around with that thing until you were like a fucking monster. And meanwhile, you have in the United States, every, the it's aerobics. It's you run. That's what you do, right? Mm-hmm. No, you don't lift weights. And it's interesting because then this also, this is happening concurrent with the decline of American industry and American Mm -hmm. manufacturing. And it's interesting to see where the hubs of strength sports used to be. It used to be Chicago, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, Wilkes Bar and Scranton, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. It was all the big Rust Belt cities. And that's pretty much every year you could count on the national championships being held somewhere there in one mm-hmm. of those one of those cities. And hopefully it's an indoor and, sport, so you can do it during the shitty days yes, of winter. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, don't need a don't need an outdoor venue. But then you see you see the numbers in participation in powerlifting really start to dwindle, and all those big gyms just die off as deindustrialization sets in. And it made sense because powerlifting, especially much more so than weightlifting, and we talked about how easy it is to get started and how you really don't need to be an athlete to get into it and to end up becoming a competitive athlete, even a really good one. If you work Ed really Cohen, hard- one of the best just, ever from Chicago, famously uncoordinated. 
Yes, Perfect many powerlifters are. Yeah. yeah, as many are. Andre Milanichev, who's come to my gym a couple of times, he was the world record holder in the squat for many years. And I think his best squat is 1,069. Dude. Super strong. Yeah, yeah that's just, that is just belt. a belt. Yeah, yeah. Up and he's got right there. like an 880 deadlift to go along with close to 600-pound bench press. He is, <laughs> there's videos of him playing basketball. And it's hilarious to watch, man. Just super uncoordinated, but they're really good at what they do. And that is moving really moving heavy things. Iron. And it always, and it made sense to me that so many of these guys, and it was the same guys that I, that trained around me when I was at Metroflex. I was pretty unique, a teenager there because everybody else was, uh, you know, yeah, 100%. And, and especially when I went to train, I would go in at night when all those other guys, because they were getting off their shift work, or a lot of them would be coming into the gym before they worked the graveyard shift, something like that, because those guys are crazy to train around because they're all insane. But it always made sense to me that would be like the chosen competitive sport of your typical uh, union worker. All it really is just picking up heavy iron. It's yeah. it's essentially an extension of it's and it's of, of unskilled labor. And again, like there's not a lot of finesse or technique to it. So no. like for well, unskilled also- labor, it's a natural, it's a natural hobby. And it's very much I thought of this too, where it makes sense in the Soviet Union why their weightlifters were such a big deal and why they there's some ideological stuff behind using the individual to showcase the achievements of the people. But yeah. at the same time, it's what better to glorify labor in the proletariat than hyping up a sport, which is just lifting heavy weight. Yeah. Like now I've been seeing some studies where it's basically like the divide in physical fitness culture in America is unsurprisingly a class divide. But a lot of it is that basically more lower class conservative dudes lift weights and then like more white collar guys do like aerobic stuff or like run it. It's really, yeah, it's basically the track versus field mm-hmm. divide. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, uh, it really is. In American athletics. That's what's interesting to me. So we take somebody like Louis, who's gone and Ripito both have gone to CrossFit boxes, explained how stuff works. Like to me, CrossFit's like this really strange addition to American strength culture. I don't know if it'll last, but it's totally changed the landscape right? Like it's also increased the numbers for weightlifting. So for people that don't know, powerlifting is its own sport. Weightlifting, that's just short for Olympic (laughs) lifting. That's powerlifting is not in the Olympics for all sorts of historical reasons. We are not going to get into. This is getting super niche here. Yeah. 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 But one of the things that's intriguing to me about CrossFit is that it does seem like really upper class because it's expensive as all hell. It pretends to be specialized. Its competitions are a huge media event. It really feels like the neoliberal strength form or whatever we call it, because it's about being fit. What does that mean? I don't know, but it gets the people going. Yeah, I think that's that's what it's become, but it has really, it has changed. It, it really is, in a lot of ways, it is un- unrecognizable from its original form. Because it really was, it, it was so close to those old powerlifting gyms when it started. It originally started with... Well, it's like strong you know, man for small guys is what it was. There's that, yeah. In these grungy little gyms, right? Yeah. It, it, initially, it was not this glorious thing. It was not this uh, glorified thing. It was not... Um, glossy. It was not glossy. That's a better way to put it. It was not glossy because it was, because there weren't, there wasn't that big of an audience for it. So the initial boxes, I want to say a couple of them in... 
Northern California where it started were literally just a, like a shipping container mm-hmm. in a parking lot yeah. that they just, they had the equipment there and it was, there was no building. I think eventually mm-hmm. they, they were able to afford like some pop-up tents if they needed them, but it was, they didn't even have a, a, a building to train in. And then some of them from there were just storage lockers mm-hmm. as so many small powerlifting gyms were. So it started off and that direction and you got to give it a lot of credit like you said for getting people turned on to the big barbell exercises it's i don't know you were i know emmy you worked at a gold's gym for a while and the lifting paradigm or at least when it came to any real kind of lifting it was all bodybuilder inspired you you did your machine circuit you did a body part split you had an arm day you had a leg day you had a back day however you want to dude i didn't know how to get strong i didn't know how to get strong until the first time i got like really intentionally strong or started to make gains there was when chad wesley smith over at juggernaut published in muscle and fitness which is totally like pseudoscience and bodybuilder culture but that really marked a shift in the culture towards a return of big barbell lifts. And he published his routine, which like basically taught you like how to program, how to get stronger. Of course it worked so well, I stopped doing it. But then (laughs) the next wave that really happens is it's starting strength comes to the fore with CrossFit and then Wendler publishes five through one. And to me, I think people really, when they start getting into powerlifting now, they don't like Westside can get complicated. I think it's better if you're trying to get past intermediate than when you're starting out. It's really you're either doing starting strength or you're doing five three one, which are yeah basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it, they're really the appeal is that they're very simple. They're very simple. They're easy. To I program. still have the they're spreadsheet of five through one. Oh, it's in super my head. easy. Yeah, I can just. It's very easy. It's very easy because like you said, the West side, as well as it works, it is, especially if you're new to lifting, it's going to be very overwhelming. It's going to be a lot to digest, especially if you're trying to read, lose articles and books about it in a very, it's like Faulkner for meatheads, man. It, <laughs> it's just stream of consciousness. The, yeah. the, like the, where's the punctuation? Like, you know, what does a bear have to do with any of this? That kind of, you know, like yeah, yeah. all no, that good totally. stuff, but it is, but the simplicity of it, but yeah, it cross and CrossFit has definitely changed, but it, it's, it has influenced the fitness world for the better. And like you said, you can just see that in the, in the publications, right. To where muscle and fitness, it was all different machine stuff. It was almost exclusively bodybuilding oriented, same with men's health or any other major fitness publication, any of those glossy magazines. And now you look at it and it's almost entirely, uh, full body barbell workouts. It's all they're prescribing squats, bench press, deadlift, overhead press. Now you even see them having to do, oh, do cleans and snatches, which nobody even knew what those were 20 years ago outside of the like dozen weightlifting gyms that existed in the United States. You did some like, cleans as like a football player, right? Some power cleans yes, as yeah, part of yeah, your yeah. training. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it has, it's definitely changed. I, I'm, I'm trying to think about if it's really the neoliberalization of it, can maybe say that. I guess part of it is what's really made a lot of that acceptable to that demographic because a lot of them still don't go into CrossFit gyms because if you go into a CrossFit gym, you will have to work very hard. The wads are still incredibly- Oh, it's no joke. I'm not shitting on its difficulty at all. I would never put myself through. I have put myself through CrossFit wads and they suck and I won't do them again because they're not fun to me because I can't, I don't know how to measure project progress. It's just making yourself Mm -hmm. suffer. Like how to become a better- 
CrossFit athlete seems like a very abstruse paradigm to enter into. Yeah. And not even your deeply ingrained Catholic guilt is enough to keep you like, keep pushing yourself through those things yeah, over no, and over totally. again. Yeah. Yeah. Really it's, I, it, I, it seems to come down to really social media. Cause you can, you can, all of a sudden you can post yourself doing these things. It was interesting too, because USA powerlifting, which is now by far the largest powerlifting organization with, I don't, I don't know if they've hit, there's tens of thousands of members. I don't think it's a six figure number yet, but they published their year by year breakdown of membership numbers starting in the mid 2000s when it was still a fairly niche sport. And then all of a sudden, into the late 2000s, early 2010s, you see a real sharp uptick in membership numbers. And then it was, I forget which year it was, but there's just an enormous spike, huge jump from one year to the other. I don't know if it was 2011 to 2012, but somewhere in that neighborhood. And, uh, and people were trying to figure out, like, man, what happened? to cause that huge jump, right? Because again, there was this steady growth, man, it just blew up one year. And the best answer seemed to be like, oh, this is the year that Instagram introduced the 15 second video. Yeah. Because it's <laughs> just, it is just enough time to put a set on there. It's perfect. And then from there, yeah. any, anybody can put it up there. And then anybody sees that. And now because of the increased demand from CrossFit, commercial gyms are catering towards people doing those big exercises now. So they've devoted more floor space to racks and platforms and rigs, the giant yeah. cages that you see there, exactly all that stuff. And so now anybody can do it anywhere. But if you're in a commercial gym like that, training on your own, it does not require you to really to put the same level of effort into your training. Instead, especially if you look good and you know how to work a camera, you know how to use some filters, you can build up a good amount of clout just from having a bar on your back or a bar in your hands. It doesn't necessarily matter how good you are at it, mm -hmm. but that you look good doing it. Yeah, that was the real thing that happened. There's all the jokes about like form in CrossFit lifts, the CrossFit pull-up will never stop being a joke. They're hard <laughs> to do. The camping pull-ups are like, I've tried, like learning how to do them sucks. And when I've achieved it, I, they suck doing it. I just don't know if they got me stronger. So I stopped doing them because I was like, this, I hate this. Um, you know, yeah. I think yeah, why like, not just, why not just get better at pull-ups, man? Exactly. And I think the other thing is, sorry, All good. I think the other thing is, and, and you brought this up before we even started talking is like, we look at CrossFit. It's not really about being strong. It's about being this other thing. I'm not going to knock it. I don't really know what being fit means, but I know that, uh, high level CrossFit athletes are fucking strong. So Very. Yeah. props, right? The question you asked is like, what happens when a society stops valuing strength as such. And I think the question, the assumption beneath that is that we might be in a society that has done that, right? I don't know if you saw, <laughs> uh, Mel Magazine put out this piece about this guy who's the, the swole left. The swole left. And it was this guy who was trying to get other lefties fucking jacked so they could go fight the fascist threat or whatever. <laughs> And of course, I could tell it's written by somebody who's done zero research and has no idea how to lift weights or anything yeah. about that culture. Because they're like, first of all, the dude's like 6'2", he's 215. I was kind of like, okay. And they're like, he's got like a 300-pound squat. And I was like, wait, what? Like yeah. a 205 bench, <laughs> like a 325 I, I remember my first day in the gym, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I was just like, oh my God, this is so cringe. And look, when I took a look at that, what I realized is that like strength was, oh God, I'm going to be really clumsy with this. But it's become part of the same like society of the spectacle performative thing that you do. It's like a pose rather than something you're trying to achieve, right? Mm -hmm. Like when I've been a part of weightlifting culture, it has frankly been like the most open and welcoming place. Deeply fucked up people within it who have like really weird ideas about the world and stuff like that. But if you're Mm -hmm. down to lift and put in the work, like you're welcome. As singularly minded as everybody at Westside Barbell is, Louis, chief amongst them, they are the, they're the least prejudiced yeah. people that, that you'll come across because yeah. they don't, because yeah. all that matters is that, that you come in and you lift heavy and you be a good teammate and nothing else matters, which is to a lot of people that seems paradoxical, but it really is that they could not care less what you're into, who you are, your background, race, creed, any of that stuff, like all that matters. And there's all different kinds of people training in there. And there always have been, right? Mm-hmm. The, the people that it's, we, we talked about the personalities, but at the same time, it's just like, you had plenty of very level-headed people, college professors from Ohio State, guys that were just run-of-the-mill HVAC workers that had a family and an otherwise normal life, all kinds of different people. Nobody cared. Nobody cared as long as they they were a good teammate, as long as they lifted hard. So that's all they cared about. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that one of the things that I'm trying to figure out how to be like charitable as I say some of this stuff. Listener, lifting weights is like fucking cool and you should do it if you can. I firmly believe that it does in fact build character. And I guess I'll put my cards on the table. Look, I am not a runner. I haven't been a runner since I was like 145 pounds. That was like 70 pounds ago. like I'm not doing that anymore. I respect people that can work their ass off and get that done, but there's nothing like pulling 500 pounds off the ground. There's not. Uh, No matter how fast I could run a 10 K it never compared to ripping that weight off the ground. Yeah. Part of the difference might be in that a lot of aerobic activities such as running distance events. A lot of that is just, you know, Part of it is just like pain tolerance, right? Especially for the guys that run that run like ultras. A lot of that is just how much do you not care if your feet bleed and the skin just slides right off? Like that's really all it is. Like how much do you how much do you hate yourself? But a lot of the aerobic stuff is just all right. Just keep going and keep going. And it's not even really a question of can you do this or not because you can keep doing it. That's the point of aerobic work because that is something that you can just keep doing. But on day one when you come into the gym, there's absolutely no way you can deadlift 500 pounds. That is, that is just impossible. There's no way to do it. There's no way you can position your body to pick up 500 pounds. Now, if you stick with it for a while and you are disciplined about it, and not only that, but it really requires, if you want to really hit some big numbers, like everything outside of the gym has to fall into place as well. And that's really something, especially following Westside principles, it is an incredibly demanding program, which means that in order to be able to perform and recover from each of those workouts, like you got to sleep, you got to eat the right amount. You've got to try to mitigate all the outside stress that you're dealing with outside of the gym. It really forces you, the guys that are at the top tier in powerlifting tend to have very 
ordered lives. It requires an enormous mm-hmm. amount of discipline. More, I would say more so than other sports, in part because it is so physically demanding the only and you're not making any of, money off of it. Yeah. Yeah. The only sport I can think of that's probably like more demanding is wrestling. Yeah. But that's just like the amount of time you have to put into it. And but, those but that's what I'm saying. Crazy too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, wrestlers are yeah. insane. They make awesome Absolutely training insane. partners, though. But they, yes, they, they fucking oh, yeah. suck to be around. <laughs> yeah. Like, but but that's but Emma, to kind of go back to your point, it's really it's lifting weights allows you to do things you you literally could not do before. And it's not simply a, it's not simply a matter of just I don't feel like running anymore. I don't feel like walking anymore. I don't feel like biking anymore. It's not even it's not that you you are doing things that were physically impossible for you. And like it's to go back to people that I work with, that's not just, that carries over into everything. That's not just in the gym. That's for the seniors that I work with in particular. They're able to do things they could not do before or that they had lost the ability to do outside of the gym. And that's, there's no other way to do that. And so if, if you really have to choose one, this is, that's really my pitch to so many people, especially the older adults. Yeah. Like a little bit of aerobic work is great. That's that, that also like for, for me to be able to recover from my training, I've got to do a little bit of aerobic work, right? Now I don't mm-hmm. run. What I'll do is just, I'll strap a sled to myself and and put about 150 pounds on it and just drag it for like 30 minutes up and down the street or inside the gym. Mm-hmm. But if you've got to choose one or the other, if you've got a tight schedule, you got a limited amount of time, like best bang for your buck is going to be to get stronger. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As Mark Bell always says, strength is never a weakness, right? You yeah. know, I've, I've always yeah. thought about this. Like, I, th- I think back to uh, Zach Evanesh early in my mm-hmm. personal training thing. I was really into Zach Evanesh, and I still value some of the stuff I learned from him. I think he's, like, kind of cringe in some ways, but, like, he's very sincere, and he really cares about the moral and physical cultivation of the young athletes he works with, which I'll mm-hmm. always respect in a coach. But he was talking about working at like one of working out at one of those grungy ass fucking gyms, and this business dude, who is extremely jacked, being like, "I go to these meetings, and because I lift weights, I just crush these guys." He's I just crush them at these meetings, and Zach eventually was like, "What do you mean? Are they like intimidated by you because you're big?" And the guy was like, "No, man, it's not like that." He's like, "I just crush them." And then what Zach realized is what that guy meant by that is that guy knew within himself that he was capable of doing things that he never thought possible if he did it, which gave him an edge over anyone else he was competing against in the office. He had that inner reserve and that confidence to put things on the line and to take it farther than most people would. Now, I think if I've learned anything, I'm not where I was when I was powerlifting and I do different things now, but I'm still interested in getting stronger. Like right now, my goal is to Turkish get up 70 pounds, which is hard. For anybody that's not familiar with that, go Google that exercise right now and you'll appreciate how difficult that is. Yeah. And That's what I've learned. We've had some people write in and ask us to talk about like general advice, especially some people, what advice would you give to young people? Now, I'm actually thinking about writing a small thing, maybe for American conservative that goes into that in a more specific way that won't deal with what I'm about to say now. And what I'm about to say now is if you're a young person, Bill's already talked to the like adults, listen to the podcast, but if you're younger, get started now, lay that foundation. 
put yourself out there, go to the gym, find people. If you're interested in any of this, please reach out. If you're an adult and you're interested in any of this, please reach out. Right. Yeah. To either of us. And I'll link to Bill's Twitter in the show notes and stuff like that. Like we know that this was like a rambly podcast. What we really wanted to do is we wanted to talk about strength culture, strength history. We want to talk about the figure of Louis Simmons, because these are the things that are inspiring every day. I think Louis crazy and I wouldn't want to be him, but to know that he exists means that there are things possible, right? We talk about how nothing feels possible anymore, but the important difference is that there's just between how something feels and what it is. And for me personally, lifting weights seriously was a way to learn that for myself. To get a little bit personal here, like I didn't really realize that I had, what I realized now is in my adult life, fairly acute ADD. And that meant that I didn't have executive function, which meant like long-term planning tasks, things like that. I didn't really know how to do, and I didn't even know that I didn't know how to do them. It was just a mysterious problem. That all changed when I finally got into powerlifting after being into like lifting weights in a casual way, after seeing my first Danzig video, 14. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then figuring out who, jacked, yeah. yeah, and then figuring out who Henry Rollins was. I was like, oh my God. Now we have James Plague, so yeah. Yeah, now we have James Plague, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that guy from uh, Winds of Plague, I think, he runs across yes. the box. But, what I realized is that I could actually figure out how to organize my life around goals. And it gave me a way to break up a week, break up a day, break up time. It gave me order. And now maybe you don't struggle with that. That's fine. But no matter what, no matter who you are, a lot of the time you'll struggle with achieving goals and achieving those goals in the realm of the weight room changes your life forever. Because the thing is, I may never pull over 500 pounds, but I did it in competition in front of three judges in Orlando in 2013. And you can look my name up and find that. I will die knowing that I fucking did that. I was there, it was in my hands. No one gets to take that from me. That's yeah, what it's and about. It, and it, to keep this sort of on brand, which you've already touched on. And I really grew to appreciate this last year as I struggled immensely to keep, to keep my gym open through COVID and through the lockdown. If you're really looking for an antidote to the feeling that nothing is possible anymore, lifting weights is, it's maybe the best way to combat that to really let you know that that there there are things that are possible, that you can hit those goals. And that really, ideally, you've got a great group of people to train with that helps immensely. But ultimately, even in that situation, or if you're training by yourself, it's all on you. It all comes back to you. The responsibility is yours. And it's very empowering in that way. It's something that regardless of the circumstances, you can always do. You can always, like so many people last year improvised with weightlifting equipment to keep getting stronger. And they could still, despite the lockdown measures or whatever, they could still keep hitting goals. They could still keep making progress. Mm -hmm. And again, just that sense that there is, there are, things are still possible, right? You can still make things happen for yourself. You can still improve yourself, improve your life. It's, I don't know if there's anything better. Yeah, exactly. So that's the white pill for the day. Bill, thanks so much for coming on and talking about Westside and all this stuff. I don't often get to talk about lifting weights, but I love doing it when I get to. I hope this was a fun, chill sesh for you guys. Look, if you want more stuff on this and on like 
physical or personal cultivation. I can't tell you that either John or I or Bill could be a fucking life coach, but I would like to think that we have something to give. So reach out if you need to. Uh, I know that goes for Bill as well. And stay safe out there. We'll see you next time.